0: Tony came with me to the piano store and so he has his hands above his heads and he's doing dueling pianos with the store owner and people started coming in off the street. They thought that it was a a player piano until they looked around the corner and seen this little kid playing dueling pianos with his hands above his head. He was so short and uh, so we talked to The music store, and asked them about getting piano lessons for Tony on the times that he was at home, and they got us piano lessons, and uh, we got the uh, an organ for him. I asked, because I had found out that Tony was blind and autistic, and so I took everything that I had been saving for college out, and I had five hundred dollars saved, and I went asked Tony whether he wanted a piano or an organ, and he wanted an organ, so that's what I got him.
1: Welcome back to Cadence, the podcast where we explore what music can tell us about the mind. I'm Indre Viscontis. In the first episode of season two, where we're asking the question, can music be medicine? We delved into Williams syndrome, a genetic disorder characterized by pathological friendliness. People with Williams syndrome often have a high affinity for music. They'd love to listen to it and they find it very emotionally moving. But their cognitive problems often prevent them from becoming virtuosic musicians themselves. Then there are people on the autism spectrum. Some of whom seem to have prodigious musical talents, like being able to hear a piece just once and then playing it on their instrument. But their social problems can make their performances seem more mechanical than musical. Today, we'll meet an exception to that rule, Tony de Blois, who is not only autistic, but also blind nearly from birth. Yet he can play 23 musical instruments and thousands of songs and even great impressions. I'll let you be the judge, but I hear a lot of feeling in his playing. He's exceptional on so many levels. But first, let's talk to Daryl Treffert, who is a psychiatrist from Wisconsin who's been studying savants for over 50 years. Now in his late 80s, he is the world's foremost expert on the condition.
2: My name is Darryl Treffert, M.D., and I'm the research director at the Treffert Center in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. I finished my residency in 1962, and I was assigned the responsibility as my first job to start a children's unit at Winnebago Mental Health Institute in here in Wisconsin. Uh, there were 800 patients at the hospital, and about 30 of those were under 18, and it made sense to put those into a separate unit. So my responsibility was to start the children's unit. And we had uh, 35 patients, most of whom were autistic, and uh, three of them caught my eye particularly. One little guy had memorized the bus system of the city of Milwaukee. And if you told him the time of day and the bus number, he would tell you what corner that bus is going by just then. A second little fellow was was mute, but you could put a 250-piece jigsaw puzzle in front of him on a table uh, picture side down and he would put it together just from the geometric shapes. And a third little guy was interested in what happened in, the, in this day in history. And so I'd come on the unit in the morning and you say, Dr. Trevor, do you know what happened in this day in history? I tried to bone up the night before, and that was in the days of the encyclopedia. There was no Google, and I could never um, outmatch uh, him. So I got interested in the situation in which somebody with a severe disability had these remarkable abilities or islands of genius that stand in such juxtaposition to overall handicap. At that time, the condition was called the idiot savant, but there was very little, I think there were fewer than 100 reports in the whole world literature at that time. So I began to study uh, savant syndrome and have been interested in it since that time.
1: And so Daryl began collecting these individuals and has since built up the largest database of savants in the world. He's also responsible for popularizing their condition, having worked as a consultant to the movie Rain Man, which brought savantism to the world through Dustin Hoffman's portrayal. People like the one that Hoffman portrayed seem to be born with prodigious potential, and their talents seem to emerge without the extensive training that the rest of us would need in order to do what they do. But some people also seem to find untapped talents after a brain injury
2: or stroke. I call the one uh, congenital savants, which means these are children who were born with autism or some other uh, disability. And in childhood, this special ability emerges. Often it's music, sometimes it's art or mathematics. The acquired savant are ordinary people who have no special interest or ability in, in, in a particular area, who have a head injury, dementia, or stroke, for example, and suddenly uh, are musicians, uh, artists, or mathematicians. Uh, and this occurs in, in, a, in adult life. About one in 10 persons with autism has some savant abilities. So however common autism is, Savant syndrome would be common in, in, in 10% of that population. Some say it's higher percentage, but in my experience, about one in 10. Uh, I have hundreds of cases in my Savant registry through the years. Acquired Savant is a much more rare condition. I presently have 91 cases worldwide, uh, and surely there are more that I'm not aware of, but uh, it is, um, it's much less common than congenital savant syndrome. Actually, there's a third type of savant syndrome, which I just have been encountering, and it's what I call the sudden savant. And these are ordinary persons who some evening for, I'm thinking one particular patient uh, or girl, girl, she um, had no particular interest in art. uh, And uh, one evening just woke up with the urge to draw and she went and began to draw which she had never done before and now she's doing these very intricate uh, portraits uh, and uh, there's been no no head injury but this it's an epiphany or an awakening that just occurs spontaneously uh, i have probably only about 5 such cases so far the the sudden bursts there is no trigger it just happens uh, spontaneously um either when the person's awake or, or asleep. And frankly, I'm a bit baffled by that because I understand the mechanism of the congenital savant and the acquired savant. I'm less certain as to what would be the mechanism with the sudden savant.
1: So how does savant ability emerge? Where does it come from? And what does it imply about the rest of us?
2: There is what I call the, the, the three R's First of all, in the congenital savant there is brain damage in the in the congenital savant, it occurs prenatally or at birth or after some somewhat after birth, there is brain damage that results in the autism as well as the savant syndrome. There is the brain damage in the savant is typically in the left hemisphere, although not always, but typically left hemisphere. Uh, So there is then the first R, which is recruitment of undamaged tissue elsewhere in the brain, uh, particularly in the right hemisphere, although not always. Then there's the second R, which is rewiring. There is actual rewiring to that newly recruited area. And then there's the third R, which is the release of dormant potential uh, from that undamaged area. As it turns out, Whether congenital savant or acquired savants, uh, they are all acquired savants. The congenital savant is actually an acquired savant. The difference from the adult being that in the congenital savant, the damage occurred prenatally or at birth or soon thereafter. But they're both. But the mechanism is the same: brain damage, recruitment of undamaged area, rewiring to that area, and then the release of the dormant potential. Some start out. Explosively, and uh, with the information, whether it's musical or artistic, what I call the rules of art or the rules of music are are there, and and they they simply literally explode on the scene. More typically, however, there is this first uh, a beginning uh, interest, a, a beginning ability, and then as time goes on, that ability improves. Uh, to some extent, it's the nurture nature argument that the nature part of the Savant syndrome is that it is the, the three R's that I talked about, but that can be improved. And the fact that it occurs spontaneously doesn't preclude it in improving with nurturing. And some people seem because the Savant can improve, they uh, take have the assumption that it's all nurture. And, uh, but, Aside from the, from the skill, uh, progressing, there is a, an even more interesting progression now that I've studied some of these people long enough. Uh, I've, some, Leslie Lemke, I've known him for 30 years now.
1: Leslie Lemke is a blind autistic savant who is known for being able to flawlessly play any musical piece that he hears after only listening to it once.
2: The transition is this, uh, Their first is the ability is often recollection. That, uh, for example, Leslie can listen to a piece one time of a very complex piece and play it back after a single hearing, and he has a repertoire of thousands of pieces. But it seems after a while that Leslie and others get a little bored with just recollection. And then they begin to improvise. So for example, with Leslie, uh, we at one of the concerts, uh, a little girl came up and played the Mississippi Hot Dog, you know, and Leslie dutifully played it back, mistake and all. But then when he got to the end, he started to do what's called variations on the Mississippi hot dog. And it was a five-minute concerto of his improvisation. And now Leslie seems a little tired with just improvising, and he actually is composing his own music, both lyrics and and tunes. And uh, uh, so he is into this third phase of, of creation, I've seen this in artistic uh, savants as well, uh, moving from recollection to improvisation to creation, and it, and that, I think, is a, a move that often uh, is not recognized unless you look, follow these people long enough.
1: This move to improvisation and composition does seem particularly rare, and argues against the general impression that autistic savants are technically proficient, but mechanical musicians, as opposed to people with Williams syndrome, whose technique lacks sophistication, but whose affinity or emotional connection with music is what's so impressive. Enter Tony DeBlois, who, when you first meet him, seems to toss this distinction out the window. This song is
3: dedicated to the people with autism. Who have not found a voice
1: yet. Janice, his mom, telling us about his early childhood.
0: I went into labor about 26 weeks. He technically died 12 times his first day of life. He had colostomy surgery when he was 10 days old and uh, spent his first two years in and out of the hospital. He was actually five months old before we got to bring him home. Then when we did bring him home, my mom and I were taking care of him and and my husband in eight-hour shifts around the clock. In the middle of the night, my mom brought Tony to me in her hand. She goes, Jan, I don't know what to do. He's turned black. And I had to give him CPR, and do heel clicks to get him breathing. And when we called the fire department, they had never operated or had never uh, administered oxygen to anybody that long. Tony is blind because of the amount of oxygen that they had to use to save his life. He has retorrental fibroplasia, or ROP. He wasn't developing language correctly, you know, I just noticed that things weren't going right for him. And Ivar Lovas, who was one of the leading authorities on autism, came to El Paso to speak. And he showed videotapes of his students. And I looked at his students with their rocking behaviors and twirling behaviors, echolalic I went backstage and I said, I want to know, how could you tell the difference between the twirling behaviors, the rocking behaviors, the hand flapping of blind children from children who are autistic? And I said, have you ever worked with somebody who is blind and autistic? And he said that in the 40 years that he had been working with autistic children, he had never worked with a blind autistic child. So, you know, it, raising Tony was, there was no textbooks as to what to do.
1: It seems that the school system didn't know what to do either. Janice had to fight every step of the way to get Tony the education that he deserved. His first school, when he was just five years old, was a 12-hour drive from their home, even though there was a school for the blind just 17 miles away. But that school happened to be in New Mexico, as opposed to Texas, where he lived. So instead, he was shipped off to this faraway boarding school. There's a five-year-old
0: child who could have have been a day student at the school for the blind. But instead, they sent him a 12-hour car ride. And I got to see him four times a year just don't do that with five-year-old children. Children have to learn how to get along first in their family, then their neighborhood, their community, the state, the country, and the world. But there was one good thing about the school. Tony actually got to have music classes, which was his favorite part. They did uh, activities of daily living. They were uh, doing his... uh, Dressing skills, pre braille, shapes, that those type of activities.
1: But then, so who took care of him in the evening? That was, you know, it was an all immersive environment, and you know, did they? The house parents took care of him at night. Wow. After a year of being so far away from her child, though, Janice couldn't take it anymore, and so she moved with him to a better location, and he got to live at home again. But those classes at age five weren't his first exposure to music. Janice actually stumbled upon his talent while trying to help him solve another problem.
0: When Tony was two and a half, since I had been going to child development classes, my teacher told me that I should teach at the child's level. And Since Tony had spent the first two years of his life in and out of the hospital, at two years of age, he wasn't sitting up yet. And I needed him to learn to sit up. And so I wanted to give him a reason to sit up. And since I was taught you should teach at the child's level, I went out to a garage sale and purchased a little Magnus cord organ. I took it home, and I took the legs off of it, and I put it down on the floor where he was at because I wanted to give him a reason to sit up. The first six weeks was absolutely horrible. He put every combination of notes together that there was. But then I heard him put the first three notes of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star together. And I ran in there and I showed him the rest of it. I went to the store and they had this collection of stuffed animals and each one had a music box in it with a different song. And I bought every single music box that they had. And then he started playing all the different children's songs that were on all the music boxes, and he was able to pick them up right away. At two and a half, my husband and I had watched Lawrence of Arabia on television. Six weeks later, we heard the theme song from Lawrence of Arabia coming from his bedroom.
1: On the little organ?
0: On the little organ.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. I
0: thought my husband had left the tape recorder on her album, and it was Tony playing.
1: So how rare is Tony? We're likely more familiar with savants who can calculate large sums or rattle off prime numbers in their heads. But how common is musical savantism?
2: It's the most common of the savant abilities. It's the one that's seen uh, most frequently. And it is usually starts with, uh, with recollection. Uh, a number of... Uh, the uh, savants, especially some of the prodigious ones, are blind. And the, the link between mental disability, blindness, and musical genius is one which is recurrent through the last several hundred years of Savant Syndrome. And uh, I'm not sure why that is, but it, it is a, a pattern. If you look at the occurrence of musical savants, Uh, And the extent to which blindness um, interferes or contributes, uh, it's rather striking. Um, uh, At the time of the Civil War, in this country, a uh, musical savant called Blind Tom uh, was was, uh, probably the the highest-earning black artist in the world uh, and was recognized internationally. And then I've worked with Leslie Lemke now uh, for 30-some uh, years, and uh, he's also blind. So this, this particular triad of blindness, mental defect, and musical genius is one that I'm really um, I'm puzzled about, and it, it, it uh, recurs. The other thing is that the uh, all of the musical savants have perfect pitch. And, in fact, I'm looking and finding perfect pitch in more and more savants, even those who are not musical. So that that seems to be an accompaniment of the musical savantism.
0: The first thing that Tony can do is Tony can improvise, and other people who are autistic haven't been improvising. Other people, if there's a mistake made the first time they hear it, will always play it that same way. Tony can create songs, Tony's written three songs already, he knows over 10,000 songs and he sings in 11 languages.
3: I'm gonna play you the slow version.
1: So tell me a a little bit more about all the places that you've performed.
3: Singapore twice, Taiwan three times, Canada, Limerick and Dublin, Ireland. We've been at the Center for the Performing Arts in Limerick, the National Council Hall in Dublin. We've been to Lagos and Abuja, Nigeria. In China? In China, Beijing, Wuhan, Sunjin, China. (laughs) And we played between the Olympics and the Paralympics of China. In 2008. I play twenty-three musical instruments. I play piano, organ, harmonica, guitar, harpsichord, violin, English handbells, double bass, drums, pan flute, recorder, saxophone, clarinet, handbells now. And I'm also doing piano Ukelele. and ukulele now. Then yeah. I, and then on top of that, I was just given a slide trombone <laughs> while we we're out in South Dakota.
1: And so, how did you learn to play all these
3: instruments? Well, um, first after the the mechanics has to be done, how an instrument is played.
0: Once once I show him the mechanics of how an instrument is to be played, he's able to pick it right up. Okay. He's had seven lessons on the trombone now. And I
3: figured out how to play the Star Spangled Banner.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, that's great. So how do you, what is that like for you? I mean, do you... I like it. It's fun. But do you, I mean, do you hear it in your head first or... Yeah, I, I just hear it first. Yeah? Uh-huh. And then, and then do you kind of like, you know...
3: When I get, when we get over to Gene Havlin, I just, we just play it. Uh-huh. When we go over for the lesson, I'm just prepared to do it. I'm prepared.
0: Uh-huh. And and he has a friend that we go out to South Dakota on tour every we year. We do a thirty day tour. And... uh Gene Hadlin gives him one or two trombone lessons while we go out there uh-huh. once a year.
3: And then we go to Dairy Queen for ice cream after the lesson gets out. <laughs>
1: that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. So what's the impulse that Tony uses to play music?
3: Just music coming, it comes out of my head.
1: hmm And when you, what, do you hear it all the time or is it only... Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. What is that like?
3: Um... I just hear it one time and then play it. Say if I hear Ray Charles, mm-hmm. and it goes, "You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are great. Like that mm. one.
1: Are you? Is it mainly uh, jazz that you like, or other types of music? Um, what do you?
3: Oh, I like. I also do nine impressions. I do uh, nine different impressions. Can
1: you do them for us?
3: Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get red. Now go, can't go, but don't you step on my blue swiss shoe. You're gonna do anything. Lay off of my, my blue swiss shoe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Johnny Mathis. Chances are. Cause I wear a silly grin The moment you came into view Chances are you think that I'm in love with you I see trees of green Red roses too I see them blue Myself. What a wonder
1: Despite the fact that playing music seems effortless for Tony, he does have something important to say about that. When we're doing the
3: concert Saturday, I like the meet and greet where they summon, we do firm handshake. Mm-hmm. So when someone comes up to us. And we have a very special message for you. It's okay to be different. Believe in yourself. Don't give up on your dreams. Always have high hopes. And the two most important words are thank yous. And the three Ps are practice, practice, practice.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people sometimes think that when someone is really good at something, especially music, that it just comes naturally to them and they don't have to practice.
3: Oh uh, yeah, but that's
1: not true, is it? Nope. So tell me about how you practice. When do you practice? How much and what is that like?
3: <laughs> Two and a half hours every day. Like when we're doing, um, we're doing the songs. Like speaking of that, uh, the first week of April. I'm backing in the high school musical, The Wizard of Oz. Hmm. Cool. So it's going to be, it's three hours of music I had to memorize, three hours of music for the play.
1: Right. So wait, how do you, how do you memorize music if you can't see the sheet music? Um, I just say, um, Alexa, play songs in The Wizard
3: of Oz <laughs> and, and then I just pick up and I just learned the score and and I just pick up the score.
1: Wow. But what happens when you're in rehearsal and the conductor says, okay, now we need to go back to, you know, page... And I just know right where we left
0: off. Okay. It is amazing to hear the uh, director say, okay, uh, starting at measure 85. And I can pick up Tony 85. Tony knows exactly where how we're How do you at. know that? You know, how like, you,
1: are you counting measures? It's like he knows...
0: My mind is going fast. He knows the mistakes that people made. In fact, if we're doing handbells, I'll hear him say... That was supposed to be an E flat.
1: Huh? So, so you know all of this by by sound, like, like I mean, so like let's say you're on measure 85, you've counted 85 measures.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to, I I just keep the uh, measures in my head.
1: Wow. I I don't know. I can't imagine what that's like because for me, when I memorize music, I can see the sheet music in my head. You know what I mean? Like, and like so, I'd have to. There, but what is?
3: There are some people that can like. <laughs> sometimes
0: well, when, we're
1: when we're doing a, a
3: community band um, I'll hear him
0: say oh what there's a five measure break <laughs> or there's an
3: eight measures of rest like when we're doing the play I go eight measures of
0: rest there's there's
3: a vacation
0: and 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 and, and it's it's really amazing when the song starts changes the the timing and you'll pay something in six-eighths time, and then it goes back and, and goes into a time, different time sequence and with rest in between. Mm-hmm. And yet he knows how to do it. But the uh, actors are on the stage. And, and and when he does the the plays, he'll tell the kids what their line was supposed to be.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean...
3: I tell and, them, and, practice and, and, your and, lines. And, and, and,
0: and, and but They made a movie about us called Journey of the Heart. And we were out there, and Sylvan Shepard and Stephen Lang was doing our parts. And Tony says, can't they get it
1: right the first time? (laughs) (laughs) And despite what Janice initially thought, Tony did make it to college on a full scholarship. Tony
0: played with the high school jazz festival. He was at the music school at Rivers at the time and so they do this big festival every year the first year tony won a certificate of musicianship to which his teacher says to me oh you know they just kind of gave it you know because he's handicapped oh <laughs> the second I bet that year, didn't go over well <laughs> no it did not the next year he went back he got a certificate of musicianship and a five hundred dollar scholarship to go to Berkeley College of Music at the summer performance program. So then, because he's autistic, he got to do it again to repeat everything the following year. Then his ensemble won second place at the high school jazz festival, and the music school at Rivers was given a one thousand dollar scholarship for to give to their best student to attend Berkeley full-time. Well, after he won the scholarship, Tony was still at Berkeley College of Music, and when he won the scholarship, I said, I want him to go to Berkeley full-time for vocational education. And Tony, when he went there, did not have conversational speech and Tony does not read or write. And their first question to me was, well, how are we gonna test him? I said, it's simple. Are you testing whether he can read and write, or are you testing whether he knows music theory? You need to ask him questions in such a way that he can play the answer on the keyboard. Which he had plugged into a computer, and he turns in a computer disk. So imagine their surprise when Tony gained conversational speech while he was there, and he graduated magna cum laude with high honors. Had he not clept out of his three irritating classes, he would have graduated summa cum
1: laude. So, what can people like Tony teach us about our own untapped potential? Where does this prodigious musical prowess come from? And is it
2: dormant in all of us? When we're born, we don't start with a blank disc and become only what we've learned or what we've experienced. The brain comes loaded with all sorts of software. And this is demonstrated not just by myself, but others have demonstrated this. Um, The blank slate is a is not blank. And and so there is this, these pockets of ability uh, within all of us. It's what I call the little rain man within each of us. That isn't to say all of us are little Picassos or Mozarts, but but in, to greater or lesser degree, we have these unused uh, areas. We depend very much on language, logical, sequential thinking, and it has served us very well. But I think we, tend to use our left brain freeway more than the right brain paths, which are less critical, I guess, or or sometimes seen as, as less important. And I suppose, using a computer analogy, if we tried to use all of those systems at once, the brain would crash just like a computer. And that's sort of what happens when you take LSD or some of the psychedelics, uh, the brain literally crashes. So I think these are backup systems that that we sort of have as backup systems, but we don't access them as much as we could. Uh, the question then becomes, okay, if that's true, are there any ways that one can tap into those abilities without having a stroke or a head injury? And I think there are really five or six different ways uh, uh, one way is uh, electronically. We know, for example, from work with uh, Alan Snyder and, and his group, that using uh, rapid uh, um, trans-stimulation, uh, transcranial stimulation, you can put to sleep a portion of the cortex. It's done for neurological location reasons, and when you do that in normal volunteers. Some savant abilities do emerge, which can be shown uh, uh, with uh, problem-solving. A second way I think that we will tap some of these abilities is uh, chemically. We know, for example, that amphetamines will improve short-term memory, uh, but the side effects and addiction potential make us uh, have problems with the um, amphetamines. Meditation we know affects um, uh, our consciousness, and we can see that in, in brainwaves. And then finally, there's something, a mechanism that's not very spectacular, but I call rummaging in the right hemisphere, which means that we set aside some of our left hemisphere activities and, and play for a time with those things that are often seen as more frivolous or when I retire, then I'll get to do these things. And we consciously, I think, can rummage—what I call rummage—in the right hemisphere to uh, so that you don't have, have have a stroke or a head injury to to tap these. And my work at the present time is trying to put more facts or more flesh on the skeleton, I guess, of uh, of uh, tapping these—the uh, little rain man within us all.
1: Well, just as Daryl's work isn't done. Neither is Tony's. He still has a dream that he's working on achieving. And I wonder if any of our listeners might be able to help.
3: Well, my dream is I want to be a piano player for Carnival Cruise Lines.
1: Uh-huh. Do you like cruises?
3: I love doing... We just did a Carnival Miracle. You did? I loved it. It was... My my favorite part was the doing the karaoke. Oh, cool. <laughs> I like that.
1: Uh-huh. The singing part?
3: Yeah. They let me come up and sing a couple of songs at karaoke night.
1: Wow, I'm sure people loved it. Sing
3: three or four songs.
0: The band also had him. And the band let
3: me come up and jam Monday night. They had a ship's band.
0: Awesome. And they gave him a lounge to play in for two
1: hours every day. One to 3 p.m. That's great. I liked it. Tony's journey is really inspiring and touching to me. But before we leave it, I wanted to let him speak one more time Performing a song that was written just for him. It's called The Way I See It.
3: I see things in my ways, you see things in yours. I see open highways and never closing doors. You may find this a bit of a surprise, but you would see a lot more things. If you saw them through my eyes I see happiness I see hopefulness In a world that says you won't I see things they think I don't I see warm, I see strong, I see where I belong, and as I see it, when I
1: If you want to learn more about Tony or book him for a gig, you can visit his website at TonyDeBlois.com. That's T-O-N-Y-D-E-B-L-O-I-S. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cadence. Join us again in a couple of weeks as we continue our exploration of what music can tell us about the mind. You can find us online at TheEnsembleProject.com slash Cadence, at Facebook slash Cadence Podcast, and on Twitter at Cadence Podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at IndreVis. And you can get in touch with us at CadenceMind at gmail.com. Also, you can support us at Patreon.com slash Cadence Cadence is produced by Adam Isaac and me, Indre Viscontis. I also created and write the show. We have additional production support from Scott Lowry. The music in this episode was provided for us not only by Tony DeBlois, but also by acclaimed New Zealand composer Rian Sheehan. Check him out at RianSheehan.com. Cadence is generously supported by the Germanicos Foundation.